Well, hello and good morning. It's time for the 26th of March, 2022 episode of the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast, hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. Now, as always, I'm glad that you could join us for today's show. Now, there's no place like this one where you get to hear about uh, some of the history and culture of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Greenwich, Connecticut was founded on July 18, 1640. And Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. With one foot in the past and the other in the present, Through this show, we can walk forward together exploring one of America's most notable and dynamic communities. It's a special place that we call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years here, as mine do, or even 400 seconds, or, or somewhere in between, whether you are here to stay or just passing through, well, you know what? We welcome you with open arms. You're a part of our history, and we are glad to have you. Now, the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible weekly by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. As we conclude the annual observance of Women's History Month, you'll hear details of one of Greenwich's greatest states. It took three years and a million dollars to complete the Greenwich version of Petit Trianon, also known as Northway, in 1910 to 1913. It was built by Laura Robinson, a lady in her mid-30s from Chicago, who was an heiress to both the Diamond Match and Goodrich Tire Fortunes. The Greenwich Preservation Network is asking you to sign a petition opposing the destruction of historic structures located in Greenwich's downtown 4th Ward Historic District. A seven-story apartment complex on Church Street and Sherwood Place has been proposed. She was a vice chairman of the Connecticut Equal Franchise League. During World War I, she was chairman of the Women's Committee Connecticut Council of Defense. This remarkable woman was best known as the founder and headmistress of the famous girls' preparatory school, Rosemary Hall. Her name? Carolyn Roots Reese. A century ago, Erwin Edwards of the Greenwich News and Graphic wrote a piece about the town's wealth and population. And you'll hear about that as we continue our observance of the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department. you hear about crimes and misdemeanors in the town's history. Last week, you may have heard that I shared a little history about Calf Island, the largest of the town's islands in Long Island Sound. Calf Island was the subject of a complicated foreclosure suit in 1897. It made front-page news. My friends, we're going to have all this news events at the Greenwich Historical Society and much more as today's show unfolds. Stick around. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by an award winner of the Landscape Architecture Foundation, Greenwich-based Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, believes that landscape design has the capacity to transform perceptions and ultimately inaugurate a deeper respect for the natural environment. Since 1979, Peter F. Alexander has been tireless in his commitment to excellence in project design, management, implementation, and personal service. Building upon a cornerstone of experience and trust, he believes that each landscaped project design expands the interpretation of design, craftsmanship, and sustainability. Peter F. Alexander is the founder of the Soundshore Environmental Information Institute. His notable projects include the Olympics Training Center at Lake Placid, New York, the master plan of the Calf Island Conservancy in Greenwich, Connecticut, numerous residential projects, and much more. Proudly collaborative in his approach, Peter F. Alexander's creations of immersive experiential landscape spaces cultivates 
a sense of community and connections that are second to none. Learn more about Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect at sitedesignassociates.com. Again, that's sitedesignassociates.com. You can also call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. By all means, when you contact Peter F. Alexander, please be sure to mention that you heard about him through the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast with Jeffrey Bingham Mead. Thank you. We also welcome Long Island Sound Institute. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. The Institute aims to use modern planning and implementing new technology to conserve Long Island Sound. Looking forward to its stewardship in the area. To learn more about LISI, go on the web to www.li. S-I-S-T-U-D-Y dot info or call 475-897-5444. Again, that's 475-897-5444. And we are welcoming a new major supporter to the show. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual Ambassador Museum based in Greenwich, Connecticut. It seeks to be a tribute to ambassadors, their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is looking for records, photographs, and videos of ambassadors and their families, or people who have been associated with ambassadors in the past. Monetary donations are also welcome. Funding supports the Virtual Museum, which is receiving support from the University of Denver and the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Throughout the town of Greenwich's 20th century history, a number of ambassadors lived here, perhaps the most prominent being Ambassador Joseph Werner Reed. He grew up on historic Denbig Farm off Riversville Road in the backcountry and served as ambassador to Morocco and as chief of protocol of the United States, among other diplomatic assignments. On future shows, we're looking forward to featuring histories of those from Greenwich who served the nation in various ambassadorial roles. You can learn more at amusa.info. Again, that's amusa.info. You can call 203-347-4604. Again, that's 203-347-4604. Or you can write to Post Office Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Again, that post office box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. The Junior League of Greenwich was chartered in February 1959. Now, since then, it has played a continuous role in designing and establishing a wealth of projects and services for the community. One of those projects was the research and publication of the Greatest States Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book. The book depicts what the late town historian William E. Finch, Jr., called, quote, the flowering of Greenwich, unquote, the changing of a farming community into a quiet, genteel town interested in community improvement and appreciation for its historical past. The period 1880 to 1930, perhaps the zenith in Greenwich's nearly then 350-year history, was the age when the word Greenwich became synonymous for the word millionaire. 
Now, as we conclude Women's History Month, you're going to hear today about an extraordinary estate. It's located on North Street, and it's called Northway. It was constructed in 1910 to 1913, and it was owned by a woman by the name of Laura Robinson. What I'm going to read to you comes directly from The Great Estates book, so if you have your copy, follow along. If not, just sit back and, and relax and listen. Two miles out of town, on what the late architect Alan Burnham called, quote, the Fifth Avenue of Greenwich, unquote, there is a startling sight. Here, possibly with a sense of déjà vu, one immediately recognizes the Petit Trianon from the gardens at Versailles. While such a phenomenon would not be surprising in New York City, it is certainly out of the context in Greenwich, Connecticut. Northway, or the Petit Trianandeur, as it is, it is more commonly called, was the result of a whim. It was built between 1910 and 1913 by Laura Robinson, who died, by the way, in 1964, a lady in her mid-thirties, born in Chicago, who was an heiress to both the Diamond Match and the Goodrich Tire fortunes. In June 1910, Laura her mother, Eleanor, and her sister, Henrietta, bought a little over 14 acres of land with the intention of building their own personal palace on it. Why these ladies wanted a chateau is a mystery, but such an extravagance was perfectly possible with great wealth and is certainly the prerogative of any princess. In August 1910, after a falling out with her sister, Laura became sole owner of the land and sought permission of the French government to construct a copy of one of France's architectural treasures. Her request was granted, and Robinson hired the New York architects J. Edwin R. Carpenter and Walter D. Blair to adapt the design of her chosen chateau. Henrietta returned to Chicago and built her own mansion without the blessing of the French. This unauthorized and unauthentic chateau is now the Chicago Medical Museum on Lakeshore Drive. To understand the Robinson estate, one must first understand the time and the architecture of France during the reign of Louis XV. Architecture was a principal distraction of French monarchs in the 17th and 18th centuries, and the prestigious post of Le Premier Architecte du Roy was a coveted title. When Jacques-Anne-Gabriel achieved this distinction in 1734, the royal purse was in severe straits, and vast new architectural works were out of the question. The royal interests were therefore directed toward remodeling existing structures or creating additions to them or to their grounds. One such revision was the design for the Gallery of Ulysses at Fontainebleau, which Gabriel undertook for Louis XVI. His major effort, however, was the Place de la Concorde in Paris, and it is here that his ability to manipulate tremendous areas of open space with a minimum of building mass is best articulated. Gabriel made clever use of the proportional relationships between surrounding structures, that is, the Tuileries, while maintaining subtle control over the entryways into the square. The Petit Trianon, Gabriel's second most famous work, was conceived as a small independent pavilion in the garden of a larger chateau. Louis XV intended it as a gift for Madame de Pompadour, but she died before its completion in 1769, and the exquisite little palace became identified with others, most notably Marie Antoinette. This building marks the break with the Rococo tradition, for Gabriel's design is characterized by simplicity and severity of line, by the stress given to the cubic mass of the structure, and by the classical beauty of the whole with its harmonious relationship to its site. The chateau is totally integrated from any viewpoint. Each of the four facades restates and echoes the other by a delicate adjustment of proportions and fine variations of detail. 
For the main entrance, Gabriel used a frontispiece of pilasters after the Corinthian order over a rusticated basement. The rear facade has full columns in the same style, while half the columns decorate the sides. The horizontal line of the cornice is uninterrupted. There are neither statues in wall niches nor garlands above the windows. In the Petit Trianon, Gabriel translated English Palladianism into French elegance with a noble simplicity. The pure white limestone walls of this chateau reflect the air of perfection that is characteristic of Gabriel's classic vocabulary. It took three years and eleven million, or excuse me, one million dollars, <laughs> sorry, to complete the Greenwich version of the Petit Trianon. Both Carpenter and Blair had studied at the École des Beaux Arts in Paris and were well qualified for the challenge. They created a near-perfect copy of their model, making certain modifications to retain the perfection of proportion dictated by the smaller acreage. The design is scaled down from 26 rooms to 13, and Robinson had two lower wings added, one on each side. The outer walls are brick, covered with plaster or stucco, but they are white. And the reflecting pool with its fountain is located in front of the divided staircase to the entrance. While Robinson's pool is rectangular, the original is circular and sits at the head of the long lawn, flanked by the drive on either side. The trees at Versailles that edge the drive are shaped with an upward scoop. Those along the approaching Greenwich are clipped into strict rectangles. It was necessary for Robinson's gardeners to climb 60-foot ladders to prune these trees, creating what Laura Robinson called her bosquet. The interior design of Northway remains faithful to Gabriel's work. One enters between two small salons into the spacious front hall, where a pipe organ once played beneath the graceful staircase that sweeps away at the right. The staircase at Versailles, of which this is a replica, shows the gentle modification of the Rococo used throughout the chateau and is considered the loveliest of the Louis the Sixteenth period. Delicate paneling continues the Louis the Sixteenth style in every room. On the left of the hall is the living room with a gallery or loggia. On the right is the handsome dining room and the most famous of Laura Robinson's few deviations from the French master. In one of the murals adorning the dining room walls, the likeness of Marie Antoinette was replaced with that of Miss Robinson. For 50 years, this magnificent residence was the scene of glittering entertainments and delightful musicales. The, furnish, the furnishings were exquisite 18th century, either authentic pieces or excellent reproductions. Every detail was reproduced from the original, including the doorknobs. The floors were parquet on the first floor and hardwood, hardwood above, all covered with the finest of carpets. There were seven bedrooms and seven baths. The three chimneys served eight fireplaces. The garage and stables, with five servants' rooms, were built in 1913, as was a potting shed and the greenhouse, the latter with three bedrooms and a bath. The formal gardens were famous, a tribute to both the eye of the owner and the skill of her many gardeners. Laura Robinson married William A. Evans in 1915, two years after the completion of her chateau. Evans was the scion of an old South Carolina family, a graduate of Hobart College, and a prominent New York lawyer. Incredibly, his mother's name was Marie Antoinette. Laura and her husband had one child, William Alexander Jr., who was killed in an automobile accident in 1939, shortly before his 24th birthday. Evans died two months later, but his widow lived until 1964. Laura Robinson Evans willed half of Northway to Christ Church in Greenwich and the other half to the Greenwich Hospital. These institutions in turn sold the estate to two New York City antique dealers, whose sole interest in Norway was the furnishings. 
They were apparently unaware that Park Bernay had a contract for these treasures. Nearly $100,000 was realized from their sale at auction in 1966. The chateau was sold again in 1967, empty of antiques, but as solid in structure as when it was re- when it was built. Today, the Petit Trianon remains a stunning monument to a woman whose dream it was and who brought it a bit of 18th century France to Greenwich. Now again, my friends, The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930 book is available to borrow from the Greenwich Library System, or you can purchase a copy from the Greenwich Historical Society's gift store or your favorite online book vendor. Well, my friends, it's been just a little over 125 years when, or rather since, the Greenwich Police Department came into existence and it was created. Um, And since last year, when we celebrated that milestone of 125 years, um, we have been featuring, uh, shall we say, news of crimes and misdemeanors and um, what have you from various places in Greenwich history. I have a couple of items that I thought that I would uh, share with you today. This one comes from the year 1908. Uh, People were still riding horses in large numbers back in those days, and yes, there were horse thieves, and we have one who was caught in Greenwich. Here is the story from uh, the Greenwich News. It was featured in the March 13, 1908 edition. County Commissioner Simon Peace of Bridgeport was visited Greenwich on many occasions, but his strangest visit was on Wednesday when he came down here in an automobile at top speed in pursuit of his horse and buggy, which had been stolen on the previous day, and found it in front of Isaac Ferris's house in Sound Beach. Now, by the way, if you are new to Greenwich, Sound Beach um, is uh, today's old Greenwich. All right. Let's get on with the story. It appears that George Williams a, uh, from Bridgeport had conceived a plan of stealing Mr. Peace's rig from the livery of Sealy and Company in Bridgeport and got another man who worked in the place to turn the rig over to him. He had intended to sell it in New York and had promised to telegraph half of the money he got back to Bridgeport. Well, when Judge Peace heard of his uh, of his boss, he, he got into his auto with a member of the Bridgeport Police Force and started in pursuit. Williams had a good start, and it looked as if the chase would be fruitless. When he was passing Mr. Ferris's house, he saw his rig standing in front of the house. Williams, who was about to sit down to breakfast, gave himself up and was taken into custody. It appears that he had made arrangements for stabling the horse and for sleeping in Mr. Ferris's barn. The Greenwich police had been notified of the thief and had searched the roads, but as the rig was not on the road, they did not get it. Well, finally, they did. (laughs) All right. We have another story. Uh, This one comes from just a little over 100 years ago. This is from uh, March and, uh, well, actually it is. It's literally 100 years uh, since this crime took place. And the headline of this uh, is from Fell from a Truck. Tolano's painful penalty for, quote, hooking a ride. Um, all right. Joseph Tolano of West Main Street in Stanford sustained an injured hip and bruises on Wednesday morning when he jumped off a motor truck. Proceeding west at Putts Hill, he was taken to the Greenwich Hospital. The truck was owned by A. Charles of New York, a furniture dealer, and driven by Louis Albert, who was returning from New Britain, where he had delivered a load of furniture. There were four men on the truck besides the driver. Two of them, Tolano and a friend, had jumped in the back of the truck in Stamford to hook a ride. When about... In the middle of Putts Hill, they both jumped off and Tolano fell in such a way that one of the rear wheels of the heavy machine passed over his hip. His friend was unhurt. The truck was proceeding slowly at the time. Albert, who was busy operating the machine, did not know that the men jumped off. He appeared in court on Wednesday morning, being held by the police to await the outcome of Tolano's injuries. 
The case was adjourned until tomorrow morning. Albert said men frequently get aboard his truck with House's knowledge, and the other day he discovered a policeman in the rear of his truck stealing a ride. My friends, to protect significant historic structures located in Greenwich's downtown Fourth Ward Historic District from being demolished to make way for a large seven-story apartment complex on Church Street in Sherwood Place, the Greenwich Preservation Network urges town residents to sign a petition opposing their destruction. The National Register of Historic Places designated the 4th Ward Historic District in year 2000 through the efforts of the Greenwich Historical Society and the residents of the residential development located north of the town's principal business district. Of the 190 buildings and sites, 160 were deemed historic resources located on Church, Division, Northfield, and William Streets, and on Putnam Court and Sherwood Place. Quote, We need to stop this unreasonable destruction of significant structures in this district. This sets a dangerous precedent not only for the Fourth Ward, but for other historic districts and significant structures which are part of Greenwich history. Unquote, says Diane Fox, Greenwich Preservation Network Chair. According to the National Register, the Fourth Ward was the oldest urban neighborhood in Greenwich, housed one of the town's most important 19th century African-American enclaves and was the nucleus of its Irish population. It includes one of only two African-American churches in town, and it was home of the first Roman Catholic Church. Comprised of the leadership of organizations committed to the preservation of Greenwich's historic resources, the Preservation Network went on record at the October 2021 Planning and Zoning Commission meeting to oppose the pre-application for the development proposed by Church Sherwood LLC. Several of the structures cited for demolition have a strong street presence and include 39 Church Street, a 19th century vernacular building built in 1889, 43 Church Street, an Italianate residence built in 1884, 47 Church Street, a Second Empire residence built in 1884, and 32 Sherwood Place, built in 1908. Quote, We had hoped a modified application would be submitted, which would have preserved these significant historic structures, while still building affordable housing in the rear. However, this application still requires the demolition of these buildings, unquote, according to Fox. Quote, it's critically important that residents from all over Greenwich recognize the impact that the loss of these structures will have on this highly visible downtown neighborhood by signing our petition, which can be found through the link on the Greenwich Historical Society website, which is greenwichhistory.org. Quote, while the Preservation Network supports development initiatives that will increase affordable housing, which this development aims to do, it is imperative that it be done in a reasonable manner and that does not endanger important historic districts, unquote, says Deborah Mecki, Executive Director and Chief Executive Officer of the Greenwich Historical Society, with whom the Preservation Network is affiliated. Quote, Our history matters. These structures contribute to a sense of place for a town deeply rooted in our nation's past, and they provide a foundation for building a better future, unquote. The following is a comment that came from Francine Gingras. She is the, a resident owner and board member of the Town and Country Condo Association. She says, quote, According to the 2019 Conservation and Development Plan, guiding principle number two states that, quote, affordable housing should blend seamlessly into the community, unquote. Tearing down historic houses is not seamless. It is a disregard for history and community. At what price is the town of Greenwich willing to tear down history? We should look at updating state affordable housing criteria and work with what we have today. 
to help us develop it, develop the right kind of affordable housing that does not strip us of our history. We need to take a pause, consider the slippery, slippery slope in danger of turning Greenwich into another White Plains or New Rochelle if we don't consider these development projects being proposed as a whole and the long-term ramifications for the town, unquote. According to a February 23rd article in Greenwich Time, Central Greenwich has been the focus of a building boom. The Planning and Zoning Commission was expected to review other projects on Benedict Court, Benedict Place, and at 240 Greenwich Avenue in its March 1st meeting. A 30-unit residential complex on Millbank Avenue is currently under construction. The applicants for the Church Street apartment complex are New York City-based real estate developer SJP Properties and local developer Eagle Ventures, who have stated their intent for a, quote, thoughtfully designed building which features a contextual-inspired architectural design intended to blend in with the various historical buildings surrounding the property, unquote. The building would help alleviate, quote, limited housing options available to the town's residents, unquote, and create housing for, quote, Greenwich's public sector workers and first responders, including teachers, police officers, hospital staff, and others who meaningfully contribute to the community on a daily basis, but are often forced to commute up to an hour and a half both ways to do so, unquote. Now, my friends, if you go to GreenwichTownsForAllSeasons.blogspot.com, I do have a link to this online, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, petition, sorry. Um, if, if you go online to GreenwichTownsForAllSeasons.blogspot.com, I have a link to the petition. You can go online, you can click the link, and you can sign it there. You can also go to the Greenwich Historical Society's website at GreenwichHistory.org to do the same. Or, if you wish, I could send you the link by email by contacting me at GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. Your help on this would be deeply appreciated. We really want to save these historic structures and the character of our town, which is so near and dear to us. Thank you. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good. Located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, super friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries and more, Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue, in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org.
Mark your calendars Monday, 25th of April, 2022. Why? Well, rock harpist and singer Erin Hill, who has roots here in Greenwich, Connecticut, returns to the cutting room in New York City, bringing her electric harp and unique brand of harp and vocal music, singing and playing the music of Kate Bush with her band. Night Scented Harp, the music of Kate Bush by Aaron Hill, features Aaron singing and playing songs from the albums The Kick Inside, Lionheart, Never Forever, The Dreaming, Hounds of Love, The Sensual World, Ariel, and more. Her band joins her with drums, percussion, harmony vocals, violin, cello, and pedal steel guitar. New York City's Daily News says, quote, Aaron Hill lights up the stage, unquote. Women Who Rock magazine says about Erin Hill, quote, This redhead delivers a much-needed dose of marvelous pop ditties with her simply beautiful and honest voice, witty lyrics, and excellent musicianship, unquote. The Cutting Room is located at 44 East 32nd Street in Manhattan. Learn more at thecuttingroomnyc.com. Doors open at 6.30 p.m., Advanced tickets $20 each, tickets at the door $25. Learn more and purchase tickets at erinhill.com. That's spelled E-R-I-N-H-I-L-L dot com. My friends, if you think that the traffic in the central business district area of Greenwich is uh, a bit overwhelming at times and uh, causes you a bit of frustration. Uh, well, I, I hate to say it, but it's it's nothing new. It's been this way for many generations. Um, and one of the things that uh, I did, uh, in fact, just early this morning, uh, was that I was out and uh, I was walking at East Putnam Avenue right in front of where the Presbyterian Church is, which is uh, right near the intersection of um, East and West Putnam Avenue and uh, Greenwich Avenue. Some of you might have um, uh, gazed over and seen a booth that is located um, just in front of the Presbyterian Church uh, property up the uh, top of uh, Greenwich Avenue and uh, kind of um, more or less directly across from uh, Pickwick Plaza. Um, The lights that uh, regulate traffic there have been there for a very, very long time. In fact, apparently since 1927. What intrigued me uh, was an article that I um, ran across in um, dated from February 4th, 1927, um, about the traffic signals uh, located there. Um, and I thought that I would um, share this with you. Apparently, these are the uh, the location of the first traffic signal lights um, that were used to regulate traffic in uh, Greenwich. Um, and uh, the booth, which uh, there's a plaque there that says 1941, but this article, again, is dated from 1927. So it goes as uh, follows. The headline is Traffic Signal Lights, New Device Being Tried Out on Putnam Avenue. And it goes as follows. With a view of improving the present signal traffic system, Warden Joseph P. Crosby of the Borough has been for some time past making a study of conditions in Greenwich and has discussed the matter with out-of-town engineers who have come here at his request. As a result of the warden's efforts, a new automatic traffic system has been installed on Putnam Avenue by the American and Accumulating Gas Company of Elizabeth, New Jersey. Two drop light signals have been located, one at the head of Greenwich Avenue and the other a few feet further east at the corner of Lafayette Place. Warren Crosby turned on the first light at uh, 2 p.m. yesterday, and uh, again, uh, to go back, that would be Friday, February 4th, 1927, and so uh, let's see, I just lost my place. All right, here it is. Um, Let's see, Warren Crosby turned on the first light at 2 p.m. yesterday, and then uh, turned the switch key over to Captain Patrick J. Flanagan of the police department, who spent the greater part of yesterday afternoon instructing two or three officers as to the operation of the lights. Now, here's where the, the part about the, uh, the booth at the top of the avenue that many of you have seen comes into play. 
Quote, a metal booth to be painted in bronze color has been erected on the Presbyterian Church side of the highway between the curb and cement sidewalk on town property, in which the officer will be stationed for the regulation of the lights. The system is similar to that in use in Portchester at present, and it and if it proves successful, it will probably be extended along East Putnam Avenue. Another traffic officer will be on duty just the same at the corner of East Putnam Avenue and Lafayette Place. There are three lights in rotation. The red, a stop signal. The yellow, a caution signal. And the green, to go ahead. The green light reflecting down Greenwich Avenue gives the automobilist coming up Greenwich Avenue, the right to turn to the right towards Stamford, and also a clear way, should the driver desires, to turn into Lafayette Place and also to turn left toward Portchester. Uh, in other left uh, toward Portchester. A new booth is equipped with electric heater and telephone, I would imagine so. If I were stationed there, especially in the winter, I would imagine it would be uh, very cold. Um, and for those of you that are fairly new to town, uh, I have to tell you that once upon a time, you were able to drive um, uh, down Greenwich Avenue and up as well. It used to be a two-way street, uh, but uh, of course, nowadays, it is not. <laughs> A century ago, in the Greenwich News and Graphic, um, the columnist Erwin Edwards uh, published an article called The Wealth and Population of Greenwich Compared, um, and it was in the April 7, 1922 uh, edition. Uh, of course, uh, Greenwich is known today in the early 20th, uh, 21st century as a wealth center, quote-unquote, and um, believe it or not, this is something that um, has been the case far longer than I think that uh, many people realize. So I found this, I thought that maybe I would uh, share the text of, um, of this with you. The uh, title of it is The Wealth and Population of Greenwich Compared. And again, this is by Erwin Edwards in a column called Greenwich Life as it is and was. The average newspaper reader doesn't care about perusing figures, doesn't care but to glance at them. In fact, he rather avoids reading them and skips over them, unless it is concerning some particular particular matter which interests him or he is looking up data. The figures here presented refer to the growth of the wealth of the town and the increase in the population and are in comparison of conditions as they existed years ago and today. The growth in the grand list uh, of the town from uh, way back to in the days when Greenwich was in a primitive state, so to say, up to the present time, furnishes an interesting study. Although from that study, one unacquainted with the town is not really afforded an opportunity to form any idea of how that wealth was accumulated, whether from the increase in population, manufactories, businesses, uh, or whatnot. Of course, most people who know anything at all about the town know how this wealth was acquired. We people of the town know all about it, know that this constantly adding of figures is no small amount to the grand list, is due primarily to this fact, to the great increase in the value of farmland and of property all over the town. The location of Greenwich, its healthful air, its great natural beauties and its growing popularity for suburban homes are conducive to such increase in the value of real estate. It makes no particular difference in what direction you go. The natural beauties of the town confront you predominant near the sound, uh, on the hills in the northern portion of Greenwich, as well as in both the western and eastern sections. Farms, which could hardly make enough to pay their taxes above a bare living, have sold for fabulous sums, and property near the shore has been equally sort and as high figure paid. Of all which shows that the man of means had found what he was looking for, a place where there was all to be desired in the way of surroundings for a beautiful home. To the charm of Greenwich, is what the great wealth of the town may be attributed to, and not to the number of inhabitants, its business or manufactories, as is the case of almost all towns. 
And it is a very substantial wealth, this property value, stable and not affected by conditions that sometimes work adversely to business and commercial enterprises or factories. But we have digressed and gone afield. We started out to give some figures as showing how the wealth of the town had increased, or rather how much it had increased, from the days when the town was a hard-struggling settlement to the present time. The first grand list of which there is any record was compiled, if it may be called a compilation, in 1665, or just 25 years after the pioneers had landed at Sound Beach, where the first settlement of the town was made. It was no doubt the very first list of the kind prepared by the taxpayers of the town. Anyway, it would be safe to assume that it was, let's see, and it is out of, uh, in pounds, shillings, and pence, the currency of England. And that period, the American dollar had not made its appearance on the scene. How much do you imagine the comparative wealth of the town was at that time, or 25 years after Greenwich had come into existence, and 227 years ago? It was given by the grand list as 1,434 pounds. Figured in dollars, estimated on the basis of five five dollars to the pound, the exchange rate before the war, which was not quite five dollars to the pound, but close enough for calculation. 1,434 pounds would be equivalent to about $7,170. In 10 years from that date, the grand list had increased close to $10,000. And so the figures went up but very slowly for years, making only a little game, as would be natural under the town's slow growth and the conditions as they existed 250 years ago or thereabouts. Now we will jump 175 years or to 1850, the time when the grand list had just reached the million-dollar mark. From that date to the present day, the tax list of the town has been steadily going up in figures, and in more recent years advancing faster and faster, until it now totals, uh, in round numbers, to $53 million. Let us glance over the figures relating to the population. Note the increase, and it will be observed that not, not at all has that increase in the number in of inhabitants been in the same ratio as the growth in wealth. Far from it. That growth has been very slow, much slower than in the surrounding towns. The principal reason for this is because there are no factories located in town employing large forces of employees. Greenwich is purely and simply a residential town. It has some advantages in being so. It retains its suburban characteristics, which appeal to many home seekers of the money class. To go back to about 1822, or 100 years ago, the population of the town did not exceed 3,000. In 1830, that number had gone up to 3,801, and in 1850, to 5,040 people. The population has increased about that ratio ever since that time, and in 1920 was, in round numbers, 22,000. It is estimated at about 23,000 now, which is a very small number of inhabitants for a town the size of Greenwich, whose area is 32,000 acres, which is the equivalent of 50 miles. On last week's show, I had some history about a purchase of Calf Island, uh, which is the largest of the islands uh, in the town of Greenwich that are located, of course, in Long Island Sound. Um, I, I found an interesting uh, piece uh, dated from uh, April 10, 1897, um, and it was about uh, something else that had happened prior to uh, that um, uh, purchase of the island uh, for possible 
making into a country club, but this is about um, a complicated uh, foreclosure suit uh, that um, uh, focused on uh, Calf Island, uh, which is over um, in the Byram Shore area. Um, the headline is Complicated Foreclosure Suit, Once a Famous Resort of Tweeds, and that, of course, would be Boss Tweed of uh, Tammany Hall in New York. Um, WP St. John wanted it for a summer home. Judge McNall has a lien on it, and the drama goes on as follows. An interesting foreclosure suit is in progress before the Superior Court in Bridgeport for the possession of Calf's Island. This is an island in Byram Cove, so-called and well-known to the people of the vicinity. It is a gem. And by the way, I, I, before I go on, this is dated from um, April 10, 1897. I forgot to mention that. All right, back to the story. It is a gem located in a position to secure an advantageous view of the sound and having most, most picturesque surroundings. The house which adorns the island at present is rather aged, but whoever secures possession of it will erect a handsome residence. The case is brought by John P. Schmenger of New York against Alexander Lutz of Greenwich and is in action to foreclose a mortgage of $25,000 held by the plaintiff against property controlled by the defendant and known as Caps Island. The property is one of the most valuable strips of land in the vicinity of Greenwich and is coveted by numerous rich men of New York and Greenwich. The efforts of these wealthy men to get possession of the island make the action unusually interesting. Lutz, at the present time, uses the island as his summer home. He is well-known in New York City. Some time ago, Lutz, and, in order to secure real ready money, mortgaged the island to John P. Schmenger of New York. The latter is well-known in Tammany circles and conducts a prosperous restaurant on 3rd Avenue. When the action was brought to foreclose the mortgage, there was a general scramble for possession of the place. William P. St. John, the New York banker and the leading supporters of William Jennings Bryan uh, in the recent campaign, wanted to secure the island for a summer home. He made overtures to Mr. Lutz, and the latter finally sold him all interest and title in the property after the redemption of the mortgage held by Schminger. It was Mr. St. John's intention to redeem the mortgage and assume control of the property, but death overtook him before his plans were completed. Now his heirs come forward and ask to be made parties to the action of Mr. Schmenger. In the meantime, however, Judge George G. McNall had his eye on the island. He learned of a judgment secured against Mr. Lutz by Judge Albert Stickney, another wealthy resident of New York. This judgment amounted to $2,228 and was brought by Judge McNall. Therefore, he acquired an interest in the island, and he too wants to be made a party in the suit. It is said that Judge McNall is desirous of securing possession of the island. Thomas McKellar, president of the National Bank in New York, is another man who is looking for an opportunity to get possession of the same property. He wants to be made a party of the suit in question by reason of a claim which he holds against Mr. Lutz. The claims of all these men to be made co-defendants in the foreclosure proceeding were presented by attorney John C. Chamberlain of Bridgeport. Attorney Purdy of Danbury opposed the motion. He alleged that there were many valid reasons why the applicants should not be made co-defendants. The island, which is coveted by so many rich men, is familiar to all New Yorkers by reason of its connection to the famous Tweed Ring, which for years controlled the politics of New York. The members of the ring spent a great portion of their leisure time on the island, and it has become famous in this way. My friends, I just received my spring 2022 edition of the Greenwich Historical Society's newsletter, my goodness, there's a lot going on, and I'd like to share some of that with you. First of all, the Greenwich Historical Society works to preserve and interpret Greenwich history to strengthen the community's connection to our past, to each other, and to our future. You can learn more about everything that is going on and what they do and how you can join the Greenwich Historical Society by going online to greenwichhistory.org. 
www.thepeopleshow.org. Now, we have some upcoming events, including one on Saturday. Um, and that would be Saturday, March 26th. That's tomorrow. The Bush Holly House of Women's History Tour, Womanhood and Enslaved Narratives in the Bush Family Household is Saturday, March 26th. It starts at 12 noon. Bridgeport's Little Iberia, The Importance of African-American Historic Preservation with Miza L. Tisdale. That will be on Thursday, April 7th. That starts at 6 p.m. That is an online event via Zoom. The Diseased Ship, a tale of New England's twin plagues with Dr. Meadow Dibble. That is on Thursday, April 21st, 6 p.m. And that's also via Zoom. Those are both online, of course. Constant Holly McRae Floral Design Series, Artful Arrangements, Tulips and Larkspur. Put that on your calendar for Friday, April 22nd. That's from 10 a.m. to 12 noon. And you know what? Uh, this is really great news. The Tavern Garden Market is coming back once again to the Greenwich Historical Society. Put that on your calendar for Wednesday, May 4. That's from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. And also, Discover Greenwich launch celebration that's going to be on Thursday, May 12th, 5.30 p.m. to 7.30 p.m. The Discover Greenwich walking tour that will be at the Greenwich Municipal Center uh, Saturday, May 14th from 10 a.m. to 12 noon. The next garden, uh, Tavern Garden Market, rather, uh, will be on Wednesday, May 18th from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. That's really fantastic. Now, if you want more information, again, you can go online to GreenwichHistory.org. You can also register for these events. Um, and for more information, you can also call area code 203 869 Nine, nine. Now, one more thing before I forget. A lot of parents are already thinking about, my goodness, what are we going to do with the kids over the summer? Well, have I got fantastic news for you. The Art and History Summer Camp Year 2022, it's back and better than ever. Summer is prime time for kids at the Greenwich Historical Society's campus, gardens, and barn as they learn skills and, and explore Connecticut's colonial history and the works of the Coscob Art Colony through games, crafts, and the hands-on fun. Space is limited, and by the way, the early bird registration deadline is April 1st. It's coming up next week, so please, if you would like to take advantage of those reduced rates, that would be a great time. You can learn more about that at greenwichhistory.org forward slash art dash and dash music dash camp. Um, and by the way, if you would like to get your own copy of the Greenwich Historical Society uh, newsletter, it is online. And also another thing that I would encourage you to do, my friends, is to join the Greenwich Historical Society. You can go online again and do that at greenwichhistory.org uh, and uh, look under membership and you can join and you can pay online. My friends, it is a fantastic organization to belong to and to support. Uh, and, um, and really, it is one that I would love to see many, many more Greenwich residents and even expats far beyond the, uh, the town's uh, borders to uh, to be a part of. I want to remind you too that um, the office museum, the store, and the cafe are open from Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Saturday and Sunday, 12 noon until 4 p.m. And um, let's see, there's I mean there's just so much going on, and um, and so you can learn more by going online to GreenwichHistory.org. <laughs> My friends, as we close out Women's History Month and today's show, I would like to share with you uh, a biography of an extraordinary woman that Greenwich calls its own, and that would be Carolyn Roots Reese, uh, the founder of Rosemary Hall. She lived from 1865 to, uh, to 1954. Uh, she was the headmistress of Rosemary Hall, and she was also an activist in the suffrage movement. Now, Carolyn Roots Reese was born on April 16, 1865 in London, England. Um, she had a younger brother named Roland uh, Henry and a sister. Um, she immigrated to the United States in 1862, uh, where she attended Madame Clement's School in Germantown, Pennsylvania. She worked as a teacher there in 18, 1885 before relocating to St. John the Baptist 
School in New York, where she taught from 1886 to 89, and later at St. Mary's School in Burlington, New Jersey, where she worked from 1889 to 1890. Now, uh, her career took a new direction in 1890, when she became the headmistress of Rose Mary Hall. This was a private girls' school in Greenwich, Connecticut, and that was a position that she held until 1938. Now, under her leadership, Rosemary Hall's mission changed from promoting the domestic arts to advocating a demanding academic program for female students that included expanding student government and athletic opportunities. She was one of the first administrators in the United States to require students to wear uniforms in an all-girls school. Now, her activism for women's suffrage took off in 1910. That year, Carolyn Ruth Rees, along with other prominent supporters from Connecticut, including Catherine Kitty Ludington and Grace Thompson Seton, urged innovative strategies to help women gain the right to vote, including using bolder protest techniques. By the mid-1910s, tensions in the Connecticut Women's Suffrage Association over the campaign's direction mirrored larger national trends. Many dissatisfied CWSA members left the organization for the newly formed state branch of the more militant National Woman's Party, founded by the New Jersey native Alice Paul and New Yorker Lucy Burns. Now, Roots Reese joined a new generation of women who worked closely with the the Connecticut section of the National Woman's Party and became becoming rather a key local leader. Now, beginning in 1916, CNWP members petitioned, wrote letters, picketed outside the White House and lobbied politicians to advocate for the passage and adoption of the 19th Amendment. Suffragists made arguments to persuade government leaders that justice mandates women the right to participate as equals in government. Because of Ruth's recent others' efforts, the Connecticut General Assembly became the 37th state to ratify the Women's Suffrage Amendment in September 1920. Ruth Reese's involvement in activism, however, was not limited to suffrage organizing. Now, she also served as the chairman of the Connecticut Division of the Women's Committee of the Council of Defense in 1917 to 1918. Now, during World War I, many women took on men's jobs to support the home front, and in this role... Carolyn Ruth Reese joined patriotic Connecticut women who helped with various tasks, such as agricultural work tending to victory gardens. She wrote articles about the success of substituting women for men in different jobs, and in an article she wrote about women's war work in 1919 for the New York Times Current History magazine. She stated that, quote, various employers testify that women learn quickly, are more attentive to their work, do it more accurately, and keep at it steadily, unquote. Connecticut women such as Ruth Reese made important contributions to maintaining morale and addressing physical and material needs during the war. Now, Ruth, Carolyn Ruth Reese remained dedicated to her public career and activism throughout most of her life. Her granddaughter recalled that she was devoted to her work and community service, even to the point of prioritizing these endeavors over matrimony and romantic commitment. Now, she never married, but she did raise two adopted children. Their names were Roland and Elizabeth before she died here in Greenwich, Connecticut in 1954. Well, it's time to go. I want to thank you all very much for tuning in to today's March 25th, 2022 Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast. My name is Jeffrey Bingham-Mead, and I am a direct descendant of the founders of Greenwich, Connecticut. That was founded on July 18th, 1640. I am the host of this show, and I'm really very grateful that you would tune in today. I'm also very grateful to my sponsors and supporters. That would be Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, also the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews, 
Matthews Wealth Management and listeners like you everywhere. Very grateful that you would join us today. We will have our next show next Friday, which will be the 1st of April, of course, year 2022. Now, you can contact me anytime at Greenwich at Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. You can learn more about the show at Greenwich at Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com. Uh, our shows are archived on podcast.com as well as soundcloud.com. I'm on Facebook. Just look for Jeffrey Bingham Mead and send me a friend request. The show is also on Facebook by looking up Greenwich, a town for all seasons. We're very grateful again that uh, that you would tune in. Um, and uh, please continue to do so. Tell your friends. We'd love to have you as um, sponsors and underwriters of uh, future shows. Again, please contact me by, by email at Greenwich, a town for all seasons at gmail.com. Time for me to go, everybody. I'll see you next week. Thank you so much. Bye-bye now. Thank you.